The sort of danger of looking at language is that the properties of language, it's not really designed for conveying the truth, capturing the reality of your experience. The fundamental function for language is to persuade people. So you are always lying when you speak. Well, let's put it this way. You're always not telling the whole truth. I'm here with Nick Infield. Who are you, Mr. Nick? So I'm Nick Anfield. I am a professor of linguistics in Sydney, Australia at the University of Sydney. Tell me more about you. Like, how old are you? <laughs> sure, of course. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I teach linguistics. I study linguistics and uh, a lot of other aspects of scholarship that are connected. So anthropology, psychology, uh, these fields are all connected and I have been very lucky to be uh, trained by some pretty interesting people over the years. So uh, nowadays I, I, I'm in a linguistics department. Um, previously I was in uh, something called the Max Planck Institute uh, for Psycholinguistics in the Netherlands, which is uh, a, an institute for the psychology of language and uh, that got me into many different fields, not just the sort of classical linguistics but other fields. Um, and so, yeah, my background is really that I originally came from Australia where I live now and uh, grew up in, in Canberra, uh, studied undergraduate uh, degree at Australian National University in Canberra. I did my postgraduate research in Melbourne and uh, now based in Sydney. And uh, I live here with my family, my wife and two kids. Uh, they're on vacation right now. Um, you know, they're just in sort of third grade and fifth grade. So uh, I'm going back and forth between taking care of them and doing my work. So they are in vacation now. So you are in vacation as well because you have a vacation uh, from them? <laughs> uh, not really. So I've been spending my time with them and we have a vacation together. So we've been going out, uh, doing some fun stuff together, you know, and uh Right now, they're just they're just chilling at home, and I come in to uh, to talk to you. Cool. So uh, I you you know what captured my attention from your work is the book that you wrote uh, uh, about uh, the language is good for lawyers. What's the title of the book? Like, uh, but but for scientists. That's right. Yeah, the book is called Language versus Reality, and the the subtitle is Language is Good for Lawyers and Bad for scientists. So that book was published with uh, MIT Press in 2022. So tell me more. Why language is good for lawyers and bad for scientists? Yeah, so uh, language is something that we're surrounded with. We, you know, we're all using it. We listen to a podcast, though. It's just language, words. You pick up a book. You, you look at a website. We're flooded with language. And uh Often we don't really notice language because we, you know, we're like the fish that swim in the water and we, we don't know what is water. Uh, and so linguists try to pay attention to this water of language that we swim in. And the, 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 the sort of danger of looking at language is that you think, or let's say everyday people, they just, they don't see it. So they don't think that it is influencing them. They think it's a kind of just, um, It's just like breathing or something. Now, in my work, I've been looking for a long time at how language affects the way you think, how language affects the way that you make decisions and the way you behave. And 
the book is just really explaining how because of the the properties of language, it's not really designed for conveying the truth. It's not really designed for capturing the reality of your experience. It can do that, but really the the fundamental function for language is to persuade people. That's what it's really evolved for. That's the real, what we really use it for is to persuade people uh, of whatever it is we're trying to do. So basically social life is really all about influencing people around us. And, and sometimes that is a kind of influence that they are happy with uh, because we're cooperating or because we have the same goals. Sometimes we're influencing them against their own interests. But when we use language, we're always putting some kind of perspective and trying to justify or influence people. And that's what lawyers do. Lawyers' job is to, uh, you know, the truth is maybe important, but more important, I am representing my client and I want to get you to uh, see things my way and I want you to come to the decision that I would like you to come to. And... Uh, Language has all these properties that allow us to frame what we're talking about in a particular way, uh, and that's the fundamental uh, character of language is, is that it's all about framing and influence. So that makes it good for lawyers, uh, and it also makes it difficult for scientists if scientists are really concerned with just cutting through the social influence and getting to the truth. And if your interest is really getting to the to the truth, then it's quite hard to be very objective with language because it is such a uh, a subjective medium. Uh, so for science, so scientists don't have uh, easy time to use language to convey the truth. Is well, is it me... possible to convey the truth? Uh, how do you convey the truth with language? Sure. So it, it, it certainly is possible to convey the truth with language. Um, but, of course, you have to be careful about what you're claiming. So if I say, well, you know, um, you are wearing a black T-shirt, you know, I, I, I talk to my kids later and I say, yeah, Fidesz was wearing a black T-shirt. Um, that's, that's true, I think, right? Um, I see it. Uh, I believe my eyes. I have language that can help me to to describe that, and I'm relying on my, the word black to uh, to convey that information. But the the problem is, if your t-shirt was just a little bit lighter, maybe dark grey, um, probably in English I would say, you know, he's wearing a grey t-shirt. But a lot of languages don't have the same vocabulary for talking about colour. English is obviously not the only language uh, and there are thousands of languages and they have very different distinctions. So if I say in another language... Are you sure uh, there is many more languages than English? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, English is uh, taking over, but uh, <laughs> it's not at all taking over. There are thousands of languages, as you know. Uh, and... Um, if I was going to tell somebody about your shirt in, in, in another language, I might use a, a word which means not black, but something like a dark color or uh, which would include the dark gray. So if I'm not showing the, pic the color to somebody but just using words, then what happens is language can, uh, language can strip away some of the detailed information. 
So every color is a, is a slightly different shade. And if I try to describe it using language, I have to rely on just this small number of categories. So in my book, I talk about um, the, the human ability in vision to see many, many, many thousands, hundreds of thousands of fine differences in color. But we have very small vocabulary, just a few dozen words or maybe even a few words to talk about it. So when I say, you ask me, can I tell the truth? Well, I can tell enough information that is useful probably for our interaction. But if I want to be very precise, if I want to capture exactly my whole experience, then that's quite hard to do with language. And that's why obviously in uh, science we have special vocabulary, we use diagrams, we illustrate uh, the facts, we use mathematics. Um, and so, of course, we can communicate about truth and reality, but we are always uh, forced to use natural human language, which is very kind of biased. So I don't want to say that scientists have an impossible time, uh, but scientists are humans and we use language, and this makes us quite a bit more uh, subjective or biased than we would like to think that a scientist would be. So uh, you are claiming that uh, it's we don't need to say the truth to convey a message. In uh, well, you know, I think that's that's right, but you need to explain what you mean by convey a message. So uh, in my view and in the view that I describe in the book, um, you know, language is a form of animal communication. So humans are uh, a, a one kind of animal. Uh, language is, of course, very special and very different to the kinds of communication forms that other animals have. Uh, but there's also a lot in common because it is built on a similar biological basis. And if you look at communication, generally, if you ask, well, what is communication for? What we find when we look in the animal world is it's really for influencing others. So you're trying to uh, scare another individual or you're trying to attract them or you're trying to signal that you are a friend or you know, many sort of functions that you have. But what you're doing often is not just passing information but trying to get them to act in a certain way to stop attacking you or to come to you or to mate with you or whatever the uh, function is so that is the basic biological foundation that we that language is built on so what we use it for is really for influencing others very simple things so for example you know you ask somebody to pass you the salt you're having breakfast uh, pass me the salt you know, you're not uh, conveying information or trying to establish the truth. You're actually getting them to act in a certain way. You're influencing their behavior. And many of our the things that we do with language can be seen that way. So if you tell um, uh, a joke, if you, uh, you know, tell a story of what happened today, if you gossip, um, what you're doing is not just exchanging information, uh, but you are bringing other people into your uh, to be closer to you, you're forming associations. We do a lot of things with language that is what we would call uh, micro-political rather than uh, scientific in terms of establishing the facts. So you are claiming that the reason 
language evolved is because we need to pay, it makes it easy to persuade others to argue with others yeah basically that's correct so this is not my uh, original claim so in my book what i do is i talk about many of the things that we know about language from from scientific research which helps us to understand how this works uh, but other researchers before me an example would be Robin Dunbar, who started out studying uh, monkeys, uh, other primates, communication, and he pointed out that if you actually look at the way humans use language, sure, we use it for uh, give, you know, sending news and uh, updating people, but most of the time we're doing things like gossiping, um, which is involves passing information on, that's for sure, uh, but really the function of it is to uh, push some people away and bring some people close. It's a kind of a, a way of affiliating and forming groups and making sure that those groups are uh, cohesive and you create some glue with those groups because you find out through language what you think about other things that are going on in your social world. So let's say you and me, uh, 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 living in the same village and uh, somebody on the other side of the village uh, did something, if we gossip about them and we both can use the language to show that we agree this is a terrible person or this person did something they shouldn't have done or whatever, it brings you and me closer uh, and it, it forms a sort of an affiliation or a coalition. that With, if with animals, they would do that kind of thing in... in uh, in other sorts of ways, not through passing uh, information, but through spending more time together or, or whatever the case may be. Um, so that basic function of language doesn't go away. We, you know, even if we are scientists, journalists, judges, um, of course, we're interested in establishing the truth through language, but we are always working within this kind of a biological frame that is animal communication and language must fit inside that and operate through that so uh for i i heard this theory before that you're describing and i was so surprised and so interested by it and i was like oh wow uh so i can use this when i talk with a, when i come up when i think on my own brain about stuff a lot of times the thoughts are le not less uh, lower quality, but I come up with better ideas when I argue with people or when I discuss about ideas with people. Uh, and because it, if, if you are correct in what you're claiming, is this is naturally why language evolved, for us to be more productive by talking. Yeah, well, I think that is a very important function. It might be a separate function uh, because, you know, the way that language works is w w we like to think sometimes that it is just a, a kind of calculator for thinking. So some ideas about language suggest that language is really just good for thinking and reasoning um, and then we can use it for other things. But as you just pointed out, actually language helps us much more, not just inside our head, but when there is a dialogue going back and forth. Um, and I agree very strongly with that. I think that um, it, it, 
it illustrates this view that says if you want to get uh, if you want to make an improvement in what you think, if you want to come to conclusions that are better quality, then what you have to do is to subject your own thinking to criticism. Uh, you know, you have to critique yourself. You have to find alternative ways of thinking. And you can only really do that through dialogue. So you have to talk to people who will give you alternative viewpoint. No, that's not right for these reasons. And maybe you can defend your position. But uh, the best thing is if you try very hard to attack your own position and uh, maybe you can improve from that. And, and language gives you uh, a but, tool but, for doing but that. But the, the thing is difficult to attack your own position when you are alone. You need, uh, you need to uh, reason. You need to talk to do that. Like you're <laughs> <laughs> I agree completely, yes. And I think because it is a, a very t difficult skill. Uh, some people are good at self-criticism, but most people are not very good at it. So language um, it allows you to, to go out and find those opportunities to subject your own thinking to criticism. I should say, though, I think that's a very sort of modern function of language. You know, I think that if you are spending time in a small sort of social group, um, you're not working on scientific questions, um, you probably don't want or need to challenge your own thinking uh, that often. But if you are working on a puzzle, if you're trying to make it an advance, um, then I think it's really important and language allows us to, th through talking to people, allows us to, to make advances in thinking that would not be possible. I, I will give you an example in my life that I was shocked by it. So I'm a YouTuber. I have, uh, I get, uh, let's say, millions of views on the videos that I upload on entertainment. And a lot of times when I sit down and come up, let's say, for ideas to make a video uh, and what it will be inside, how the structure will be so people are interested to watch until the end and we um, hook them and for them to not leave the video, I come up, when I sit down and I write, I come up with, let's say half of the stuff, half quality of the stuff that if I have two other people to just speak and fight about those because they throw ideas, they challenge my own ideas. And it's like in the same time, it becomes double the productivity of the, of, of the task, which yeah, is amazing. Yeah. yeah, it is. It's incredible. I think the, the mechanism is, is really uh, quite ingenious so normally when we're thinking by ourselves we we suffer from these biases you know we have this bias in particular called confirmation bias and that bias makes us look for reasons to do the thing that we wanted to do uh, so we have an idea like you come up with an idea and all you're interested you find here's why that's a good idea here's why that's a good idea Here's why that's a good idea. And you need someone, it, we are naturally biased towards thinking that way. And it's actually, it's actually very difficult to find ideas, uh, sorry, to find reasons not to do the thing that we are already want to do. So that's why we need people who want to help us <laughs> by criticizing us. It's a very particular kind of game, if you like, uh, where people, you need to have that uh, openness with people that they can convince you no, uh, that's not very good reason. That's not a very good idea. And here's why. And you, you can see, ah, I didn't think of that. So it really requires cooperation between the people who are involved. That's a really important piece about it. And it requires a kind of a, 
unusual, quite human type of uh, trait, which is allowing yourself to be criticized. So I sometimes I think about it like going to the dentist. Uh, if you go to the dentist, it's this kind of crazy thing, right? You lie back and you just let this stranger put this of very dangerous things right inside your mouth, right? <laughs> crazy. Like w- no animal would let you do something like that, right? I mean, maybe if it's your own dog or something, they would let you do something like that. But uh, it's a very strange thing. That, But we are capable of th- re- thinking, okay, this is actually good for me. I will let someone sort of <laughs> do this dangerous thing to me. And I think about a conversation a little bit like that sometimes uh, of the kind you're describing, which is I'm going to let you critique. I'm just going to, you know, let's see where this goes. Even if it causes me pain, I know that it's going to benefit me. And language is the tool for letting that happen. So I have a stupid question for you. Why language is important? I don't think that's a stupid question. I think it's a very good sort of basic question to ask about a language which probably many linguists uh, don't stop to ask. I mean, maybe we we think it's obvious. Um, So I suppose an obvious answer is that uh, everything that humans are able to do, which is an amazing amount of incredible stuff, would not be possible without language. It just would not. So if you look at, you know, anything you can list that is incredible about about our lives and about the world that we live in. So just take, you know, forms of artistic expression, the kind of, uh, you know, music that you love, the, the YouTubers, you know, your channel. Um, think about technology, the stuff we are using now, this technology to connect with each other across the planet, uh, the medicines that we take, you know, so many things that we take for granted about our life have a very deep history uh, in human cooperation and in passing on knowledge through generations. And that cooperation and that knowledge transfer we just would be impossible without language. So there's there's no other animal in it on the planet that has technology, anything like what humans have. There's a few small examples of, you know, chimpanzees will use a stick in a certain way to get ants uh, out of a hole and birds would do similar things. Um, But you don't build and build and build, just get in your car and drive down the street, the amount of, uh, of, of the millions of, hours and the lives that have gone into developing all of that tech um, that, that makes our world sort of a lot more comfortable and interesting, uh, it just it wouldn't not be possible with language. So that's one answer is that um, language provides. That, that, the- so, so basically to summarize what you said, you said that because of language, we are able to take over uh, from all the other species and have what we have. <laughs> well, uh, y- yes, but I, I wouldn't, I mean, that sounds, it doesn't sound so nice if you put it in that way because you could say, well, maybe the world would be better if we didn't have language because then we wouldn't be making 
uh, certain animals go extinct and we wouldn't be polluting the planet and creating climate change. And, you know, you could say, well, maybe the world would be better if we never developed uh, uh, language. That would be one one kind of answer. Um, but I think, you know, you can focus on the bad if you want, but also the good that all of the uh, incredible kind of richness of human cultural existence today and the possibility of, I mentioned things like, um, you know, medicines for treating sickness and um, all of the kind of social values that we have and the the kindness that we experience and uh, and all of that is part of what we've built through language. So let's just say that whether language has had good outcomes or bad outcomes, it's important because that's the question, that's the word you used in your question. Why is it important? It's important because it... Oh, you are a linguist. You are, you, you. <laughs> yeah, why is it important? It's, it's important because it is really vital to what makes humans human. So if there's bad things about humans, uh, it's probably got to do with language. If there's good things about humans, it's probably got to do with language. Um, in the sense that, I don't mean in a very direct sense, so like rockets and bombs... Uh, are very human things, and of course they they're not they're not built out of language, but they couldn't have been built without language. That's my point. So um, the good and the bad about humanity uh, depends on language, and that, in that sense, that's why language is so vital to to what it means to be human. And if you could take it away overnight, if you were God and you say, "I'm going to just." make everyone not know language at all and not be able to invent it well you know that would be the end so are you ready for another stupid question yeah sure i like uh, these questions they're not stupid <laughs> so what is language well what is language i i think there's a fairly simple answer is, pr is probably the, the the best one which is that um Language is a system of communication that has words and rules for combining those words into sentences. And I think that's pretty much, that's it. So if you, if you look at other animals, you don't, they don't have words, um, they don't have rules for combining them into sentences. If you look at any human language, uh, let's say six or seven thousand languages in the world today, uh, they have very different sounding words, but they all have words. Uh, and they have so this, this, this is not language if I do this too. I personally think that is uh, language because I, I basically think that's a substitute for, uh, for words. It's, it's what some uh, people have studied these things quite a lot um, and there are different types of gestures that we use. So this type of one that you just did is, uh, is a, a particular, there's a family of gestures, you know, okay sign and peace sign and middle finger up and thumbs up. You know, these are basically um, replacements so the, for... So the, the middle finger is real in Australia as well, right? Yes. Yeah, very offensive. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's very powerful. Uh, and in terms of influencing other people, you know, you can make people punch you if you, if you put that, if you do that, right? Um, so... Th that I think is very much like language in that it kind of, you know, like that middle finger up, we, you could also just say, you know, F you or something like that. Um, 
and it's like a replacement for words. But there are other kinds of gestures uh, which are not really replacements for words that they accompany words. So you might be talking about, you know, the angle of a of a of a, a road that you went up in your car, and you know you can adjust with your hand this angle very subtly in a way that you can't capture it exactly with with words. So, so those type of gestures don't replace words, but what's important is that they're part of the process of, uh, of speaking. And animals, again, animals don't have those kinds of gestures. They don't have pointing gestures that they use. There's some simple examples, but nothing like, you know, humans are very dependent on pointing. We point at this and that. Uh, and we use these gestures. So I think that it's a very good point you make that what about gesture? Well, it's part of the, the, the broader system. But if, if you want to just have a, a, a basic definition, language is a way of communicating that uses words and rules for combining those words into sentences. Okay, so do you not want to know? There is two real reasons why you are here today. Do you want to know the first one? Sure, I'm quite curious. Cool. So I've been uh, following uh, to understand. Uh, Noam Chomsky is one of the best linguistics in the world. Uh, quite old, but this is uh, what the, uh, what people say that they are he's the best linguist and i studied that uh, he says that recursion in language so the ability to say uh uh yesterday i ate with john and like built with sto- uh, stories upon stories inside stories and stuff whatever or so, and they say that's the most fundamental thing uh, in, this is what he's claiming, that this is the most, uh, w- when you don't have recursion, you don't have language, as I, as I understand things. And mm-hmm. I want to you to explain me why this uh, is. And if you agree or disagree, and what does, the, because in my brain, it doesn't seem fundamental, like uh, why it needs to have retention. Recursion. Uh, I can say, I can do very basic stuff that doesn't have retention and still language. Right. So, uh, uh, okay. So, so a bit of background. I mean, you said, uh, Noam Chomsky is regarded as the best linguist. Uh, I don't think that everybody agrees with that statement. I think that everyone would agree he is probably the most famous linguist. Uh, whether he's the best is another question. So he's obviously an incredibly smart person who's achieved <laughs> a, an enormous amount. He's done, made a lot of uh, unbelievable impact in 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 his in his uh, field. You know, he's probably more people have cited his work than anybody else alive. Um, his his impact has been massive, but his work in linguistics is uh, very narrow. So a lot of people uh, have studied linguistics for or languages generally for for hundreds of years, and his idea of what language is is a very very narrow set of all of the things that you might be interested in about language. And and you you pointed out that he's interested in this idea of recursion. So that is a very uh, kind of mathematical, informational, technical aspect of language. And it's it's true that recursion is 
is quite uh, unusual and it's something that languages do. So you gave the example of, um, well, I, let me just give you an example. So I can say, you know, uh, John went to the market, it's a very simple little sentence, and then I can put this sentence inside another one. So Mary said John went to the market. And then recursion means you can take the output and then put it in again to the same. So Bill believed Mary said John went to the market. Okay, and Jane thought Bill believed Mary said John went to the market. So actually quite quickly it's hard to remember, hard to process. And, and, and there is a joke that someone said to me uh, that uh, the the biggest uh, phrase in the world is like a big book and, uh, and then uh, it's easily the record of the biggest phrase in the world that with and it's easily passed uh, the the record because the next person is using John said and exactly. everything that was said in the book exactly. is so funny <laughs> exactly so it's a, it, the point though is that it's infinite so you cannot you know recursion is an infinite operation but in reality when we use language you know nobody's ever going to be able to say an infinitely long sentence you know you die before you get to the end um, so. Uh, obviously, Chomsky knows that, and he's uh, pointing out that this is a, an underlying possibility that language creates, and the reality of life means that most of our sentences are quite short. Now, um, I agree with Chomsky that, that you know recursion is important in many for many languages, and um, uh, how, however. A lot of linguists have said, well, it's not really needed for language. There are a number of ways in which you can, you know, have a very rich language without having these recursive operations. Um, you just imply things. You don't have to kind of uh, make them explicit in, in, in the language. So I think that this idea is sort of um, not everyone agrees with Chomsky and it doesn't really seem to matter that much for a lot of the work that people uh, do. I guess what I would want to emphasize is that, uh, you know, the recursion issue is one, uh, one small thing. There's a million other things that are interesting about language, um, which Chomsky's very sort of narrow view of interest, it just doesn't cover. So uh, I started out talking to you about how language is a form of cooperation it's a form of influence and it is it gives humans a framework for social interaction which is very kind of unique right so when we talk to each other we're actually in a cooperative it's a form of cooperation it's like playing a game together uh, we make a commitment and so there's one argument says wait uh, recursion is not what's important or unique about language what's unique is this possibility of making a joint commitment and using language to create cooperation of a certain kind. And, and we, I won't go into it all now. There's a lot of interesting research and scholarship around what, what that actually is. The point is that there are alternative ideas around uh, what is unique and, and, and centrally important about language than just recursion. So recursion is very informational but I my argument like many other people is actually no what's really fundamentally important about language is 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 social and interactional um, so that would be 
sort of my 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 basic first reaction to to the Chomsky um, point so, of view. So uh, recursion is not the most fundamental important thing, like it's painted sometimes. Not for me, no. I mean, I think it's overrated, basically. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's interesting, it's important, uh, but I think it is far from the most important thing in language. I think that, and the reason is because, uh, you know, some as some people have demonstrated, you don't really need it for language or at least you don't need to rely on it very much for, for language to be productive. And also then there are other things that are surely uh, as important, if not more important, uh, as, I, as I just mentioned. So I think it's um, it, the emphasis on recursion is uh, too much. So I will tell you the other reason later. Okay. So uh, <laughs> for, for now, I want to ask you, uh, so you study language. Does that help you speak better and articulate yourself better and maybe win some arguments or persuade some people easier? No, not really, although you would think it should. So uh, I thought you were going to ask, does it make you better at speaking other languages? And I think that the answer to that is probably yes, because when we study language, the sort of basic uh, things that you study in, in, in linguistics is things like how do you move your, your mouth to create different sounds from languages and how do you change your accent, uh, what kinds of different grammar can you have in different languages this thing sort of opens up your mind a little bit to the possibilities of language and it means that it's usually a bit easier to to learn a different language from your own native language uh, but but then you asked about you know are you better at winning arguments and I think that probably you know if you study linguistics today it's not you know, winning arguments is something more like what used to be called rhetoric, uh, you know, the classical forms of uh, persuasion and but probably... But don't, don't, don't take it only on the winning arguments. There is more to it, like for you to be able to teach your students better. For like, There is a lot of uh, ways that you use. Like my question is, do, do, does that have any effect to your personal life that, or to your life that you... You become better in these things because I everything is language that you describe. So if you know how this thing works, maybe you can manipulate it a bit and be more efficient with it or something. Yeah, I think so. I think so. So I think that in general, it's first thing I want to say is it's not guaranteed. So if your listeners are thinking, oh, great, I'm going to go do linguistics and become more persuasive, um, you might be disappointed because often uh, linguistics uh, degrees will focus on things like, you know, uh, phonetics and uh, syntax. I, I love these subjects for sure, but they're not really about, um, about things like persuasion. But in my book, uh, Language Versus Reality, that, that you, you mentioned earlier, um, I do make the case there that if you learn a lot about how different languages can influence you and influence other people, uh, then you should be able to become more mindful of, the, of that power that language has. So you become more conscious and more mindful about how you use language. So in the, at the end of the book, I talk about the kind of the potential of learning about the power of language for more, uh, partly for sort of, 
more effective speaking, um, but also for more ethical speaking in some sense. So for sort of, you know, thinking about the impact that you have on other people through the choice of words that you make. So we choose, we ha- always have to choose a certain way to describe this situation. We usually don't think very much about it, but if we study the way that language works, you, you start to realize, oh, um, that word, that way of describing the situation will, will make people will put this in a bad light or a good light. So a classic example, it would be something like uh, talking about the, the terrorists uh, versus talking about the freedom fighters. Same people, but you have uh, two different sort of uh, framings for that. Now, that's a very extreme example, but uh, every day when we're talking, we have to choose one word instead of over other words. And if you become more conscious of how the choices of words that you're making, then uh, I think, yes, that does make you a better communicator. And a better communicator means uh, more effective at persuading others. That's, the, in a way, good for you, not necessarily good for them. Uh, but also a more ethical language. But if, if you are a good person and a good teacher, then it's good for them as well. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that's that's the win-win. You know, that's win-win. because And most of life is about cooperation. Most of, you know, of course people compete and deceive each other, but I don't think that's the majority of what happens in our day. I think most of the day we're with people who have similar goals to us. We are cooperating with people. So the way that we influence them is usually helping them. So, indeed, it helps you uh, become more careful with your words. And yeah, I think so. Understand the power of it and therefore be able to persuade others better. Absolutely. And I, I think it's just worth thinking about how, what a powerful thing language is. So, you know, um, you look at things like, you know, cars, right? So, you know, there are cars everywhere. They're very powerful. Uh, they're very dangerous. Um, and so the government, you know, regulates them and says, you know, you have to learn all this stuff about cars. You have to learn how to drive them. You have to learn the rules. And only then will we give you, you know, a, a license you can drive. Uh, you know, and, and when, I, when I had kids, um, I remember someone saying, you know, well, they do that for cars, you know, but they let any old person have a kid you don't have to get a license to have a kid you know you can just be a complete idiot uh and have a, and have a kid um and i think in a way language is similar right you know you can any any person speaks uh you can't stop people from using language and in a way i'm not advocating you know getting a license to use to use language uh but what i mean what i mean is that it's a powerful thing and we should voluntarily take an interest in that power and ask ourselves, you know, how can I use this quite, quite powerful device um, best? So I watching on myself on uh, this podcast sometimes and uh, speaking with other people, I understood how bad I am in expressing myself. Uh, so 
Do, what you th so you you think this is natural things? Uh, you think I can improve on this? You think uh, is is if I'm more cautious, like with the language, like uh, should how should I go about it? And other people that they have the same problem with me. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So, um, I wrote a book in 2017 called How We Talk, and uh, it was about conversation and how the sort of structure of conversation works. And one of the, th the things I focus on in that book is uh, what I call traffic signals of conversation. And that's things like when we say um and ah and when we have, uh, you know, we're not fluent with our speech. And a lot of interviewers were very interested in this question because, you know, you go online and there's always these articles that say, how do I stop saying um and ah, you know, I want to be more fluent. And my view is that you can get rid of that disfluency. One way to do that is to know what you want to say. I mean, that's basically a sign. When you start using these words, you, you are indicating that you don't know what you want to say yet. I mean, that's it's more complicated than that. But if... For example, you, you, what you just described about your own expression, I think, and also just, you know, watching you in the last half hour, um, it's, it's not about a problem with language. It's the fact that you are actually actively thinking about what you want to say. So that active thought is actually coming out in what we might think of as being disfluency or sort of not fluent speech, right? But we all have that experience when we are exploring what it is that we want to say and we're not quite there yet. So if you want to get rid of that, you know, that's basically only going to be possible in a context where you can really prepare beforehand for exactly what you want to say. But that's a bit want. boring, right? Yes, it's a <laughs> bit boring, exactly. So, you know, I think that... I value, you know, that sort of disfluency to in the right context. And I think one of those contexts is exactly, you know, when you've got conversation that is spontaneous and you're exploring something that you haven't even thought about before. And so not being 100% fluent is actually a good indication that you're still kind of exploring those ideas. And, and, and I think it's also a matter of style. So... Uh, people, when we see ourselves talking, I have the same experience. I, I, I do an interview, I listen, I have these phrases, I repeat, and I don't like it. But no, but when no, I, you, are, you are you are amazing in explaining well, stuff. Well, if, well, if I am two, you are ten. <laughs> well, when I hear other people, though, I, I I don't I don't mind it at all. I don't mind that that the, the sort of disfluency and and so on, because I think that it's an indication that they are thinking, you know, and uh, so this is the experience I have uh, listening to you. And, and for that reason, I would say, you know, it's, it's nothing to worry about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's comforting coming from a linguist. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I want to uh, ask about When do you think language start emerging in this world? What uh, what uh, what time? Three thousand so, years, three hundred thousand years, million years, and what is the science that we had? So, 
the evolution of language in our species, that's something that is very controversial. So, you know, um, back in the uh, old days, they was a famous uh, situation in the French Linguistic Society. They said, uh, you know, we're going to ban any papers that are speculate about the original evolution of human language because it's just speculation. We can never know. It's not scientific question. We don't let you talk about that. Um, and nowadays that's changed completely because, uh, you know, evolutionary science is incredibly advanced. There's a lot of wonderful new methods, a lot of new uh, ways of, of modeling and computing the possibilities. There's uh, new data about the, from the fossil record. And it's actually a very rich field now, uh, evolutionary uh, linguistics, and it's been, um, it's been going strong. So that doesn't mean that there is a, an agreement among experts in this field. So I'm not uh, doing research on the original evolution of, uh, of human language myself. Uh, but there's a consensus that probably language uh, emerged around about 100 to 200,000 years ago. Um, and some people say much less, like 50,000. Um, some people say much more. But, you know, rough sort of uh, average of the kinds of time period people say it's going to be a couple of hundred thousand years. Um, and, of course, it... It's very hard to answer the question because there are no fossils. We cannot tell what, you know, we, there are fossils of things like people's bones and, and maybe the objects that they're making leave behind in campsites, but you cannot get fossils of human behavior. Um, so I don't really have a personal view on how long ago I think uh, language emerged, but it's certainly... I'm sure that at least 100,000 is going to be right because, you know, you have people traveling uh, all around the world from around that time who, you know, evidently have all uh, brought languages with them. Now, uh, we don't really know the deep history of languages. We can compare modern languages and understand how they are related, but that can only go back a few thousand years. So we really don't know anything about what the languages were like in the world if you go back 20 or 30 or 50,000 years. We assume that there was language, we just don't really know uh, what it was like. The very interesting questions of what it must, what the first languages must have been like and, uh, you know, there, there are people speculating about that. So exactly. Some people say that, you know, it's a gesture started that off. Um I think that um, that's quite possible. And I, I, I think that, you know, in my work, what I've been focused on a lot uh, uh, is the fact that language is a form of action. So I, I, we started out talking about how language is a way of influencing others. And if you look at how we influence others without language, we might be, you know, reaching towards them. We might be, you know, uh, putting our body in a certain direction that show them we're going to go towards them or we're going to go away from them, the sort of signals that we give, those are the same kinds of signals that animals can give. Uh, and so I believe that language has to kind of have emerged on the basis of the actions that we perform when we're interacting with others. And so gestures could naturally emerge in a context like that. Um, 
And once you have gestures, you know, it's a complicated path, but certainly many people have argued that from gestures uh, of some kind early on, then language could could evolve. But clearly it takes a very long time. Uh, I'm a bit confused. So you said uh, action is a form of language? No, language is a form of action. Uh, so... Um, what I mean is that <laughs> that's uh, for me is the same thing, but for for uh, for a linguist, it's, it's, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, actually, there are all sorts of different actions, right? So if I take a rock and I break another rock, that's not language. It is action, but it's not language. Um, but there are kinds of actions that I perform on other people. So let's just say, for example, let's say you and me were in a room together. And I want you to In a to virtual get, room. Yeah, virtual room. <laughs> no, I mean, let's make it a real room. Let's make a real room. Let's pretend that we're in a physical, we're in a room together. And I want you to be outside it, the room. But, but let's put it that we're in Cyprus. Do you know where Cyprus is, the room? Yes, yes, I do know okay. Cyprus. Yeah, let's, yeah. let's say that we're in Cyprus. Okay, let's say we're in Cyprus <laughs> and we're inside a room. And I want you to go out of the room for whatever reason. There are two ways I can do that. Right. One is I can push you out if I'm strong enough. I think, you know, you are a strong young man. You probably push me back. But, you know, I can push you out is one way to do it. And that would be an action. I'm physically acting on your body to get you out. Another way to do it, which would be much more the usual human way to do it, is could you please leave the room? Um, and you can describe that as just I just make some sounds from my mouth right you understand these words but if you're a, a, a Martian and you come down to to earth to observe earth uh, creatures I just make a noise and then you go out by yourself like a kind of magic uh, I don't have to push you you just go out um, and that's we see the equivalence of language to a physical action. So it, when I do things like I ask you to leave and then you leave, what I've done with my language is I acted on you and made you do something. Did, did, did the pushing is language as well? I'm sorry? Does the, pu the pushing me out of no, the room is language? No, the pushing is absolutely not language, no, because that's just physical force, you know, that, that, that there's no – you don't need to But put it I, this way. I'm trying – I'm trying to communicate something with pushing you. I'm, I'm, yeah, am but, I not? but I'm, maybe, maybe, maybe you're asleep and I could just push you out while you're asleep. But I'm not communicating with you. I'm just trying to remove you. It's a physical action. But with language, the really important difference is this. If I push you out, whether you're asleep, alive, dead, whether you speak another language or not, doesn't matter. I get you out just for physical force. If I try to get you out using language, You have to be paying attention to me. You have to know the language. So if I speak to you in some language you don't understand, it's not going to work, right? So we, you need to actually recognize my action. And then you can uh, respond in the correct way. So that's this very deep dependence on a social convention, right? That's what language is. That's why languages are different everywhere we go. Um, I have to rely on you understanding what the connection is. So you're... Your uh, compliance or your uh, the effect of getting you out comes through your understanding. Whereas if I push you with just with my hand, you don't you don't have to understand that. You just your body gets pushed out. You see what I'm saying? 
Yes, and it's kind of very funny and beautiful when you put it that way that an alien is watching from above. It seems like magic. The language seems like magic. So, so that's right. It's so be- and, so, and th- that's the reason why I see language as a form of action because, you know, if you just track, you just observe directly what are people are doing with languages that we're, we're making these noises or these physical actions, visible things, sign language or whatever, um, but you respond in in very particular ways and also you respond very quickly. Um, so I'm cr- actually a f- influencing you every moment through my language and that's why I call so it action. I want to ask you the billion dollar question. So why, not, not, not the, this is not the question the, uh, why you are here, but right, so right. how, what is the difference between people that they shake, uh, the word with their language and the people that they don't get anyone to act on what they're saying. So for example, Elon Musk played a big role in my development as a human because of, I don't know, the power of the language that he's using probably. So what the, what it makes, is it, uh, is it the language itself? Is it the things that other person did in his life? Is it the power that he's communicating, the alpha male thing? Like what makes uh, someone uh, more convincing than the other? Yeah, that's a very deep question and I think a very complex one. I would say language is certainly not the only thing that's going to be part of that. I mean, uh, but we can say language plays a role. So language uh, is very... Maybe language is the, is the vehicle that is doing that. So maybe it doesn't... Uh, uh, Let's say is the thing that it has. I'm, I'm stupid. Sorry for I tried to answer, but I had this idea. It's like a, a train having wagons, uh, whatever, with gold. Then maybe it has wood or has something. Is the vehicle language, and then what is inside is a different thing. I don't know. Like what? <laughs> um, I'm not sure. I mean, in the case of somebody who's very influential, like Elon Musk or or, or whoever it is. I mean, I think that language. You don't want to put too much. Or Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you, you don't want to put too much emphasis on language in the sense that, you know, it's not like they have some magical ability with language they can convince anybody of, of anything. I think that um, they might have some special skills with language. I'm not sure that Elon Musk really does. I mean, I, I, you know, I, 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 he's obviously very interesting and, and very influential and uh, I'm not sure it's because... I don't really hear him doing anything very special with language, although I haven't studied it directly. It's an interesting kind of question. But you would also, I think you should also look at not just how he uses language, but how everybody talks about him. Um, And so there's a few, so language plays a role, but not necessarily through his mouth. So other people saying things like, well, just how much do people talk about him? which is a lot, right? I, so, I talked about it now. <laughs> yeah, you just brought it up. Here we are talking about Elon Musk and a million other people on the planet, a billion probably saying his name every day. Um, so people, you know, there, there, there is a, an effect in social life that we want to, uh, we need to focus on similar things to create common ground and to create common attention. So uh, what you find is there is a kind of uh, 
there's a principle called a rich get richer principle, which is kind of uh, ironic with Elon Musk uh, here. But it means that if you start talking about one thing, then everybody starts talking about that thing and it attracts all the attention. It's the same with music. It's the same with movies. You know, someone's got to be right up here on the top and everyone else is like right down here. And there's always got to be some very big, all the attention is going, it's Taylor Swift, it's Elon Musk, it's Brad Pitt, you know, whoever the sort of, um, the, and you, you know, you're, you're a YouTuber, you're trying to break through to that top, that very small kind of window. And, and how do you do that? Well, it's these sort of network effects that create that. So part of the answer, I think, is that it's kind of luck. There's got to be a lot of luck involved in how somebody like Elon Musk has got to that position. But obviously there's more than that. It's not just luck. You know, so Taylor Swift is a good singer. You, you know, you're a great YouTuber. Musk is a great, uh, uh, you know, innovator, um, CEO, what have, what have you. So those, his achievements are another piece of it. So, you know, he's done special things that other people can't do and, uh, you know, doesn't, you can talk about them in different ways, and people do talk about them in different ways. But I, but coming now back to your question, maybe there are. By the, way, in- by, 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 by the way, I find very very interesting what you're saying now that other people are using the right language to describe him, not necessarily him always. Yes. Yeah. Is- <laughs> yeah. So you you know you get this discourse, this circulation going, and. Uh, and then you get, you know, a sort of a, a contest or a competition about what is the right way to talk or to describe what he does. So, so if you go into the newspapers and you look at what, how do people talk about Elon Musk, some people say the word genius. Uh, some people say visionary. And other people say, you know, crazy person. Asshole. Uh, school child, asshole, you know, all these, uh, <laughs> d- you know, d- terms that are very negative. Um, but they're very typical kind of going back to our original kind of question, are we using language to convey the truth or just to try to, to, to influence people to my point of view? So if I want to say he's a genius, I can, what I'm trying to do is to elevate some features of this complex person and hide some other features. And if you say, oh, he's an asshole, well, you're elevating different features and hiding other features and you're so using you language alwo- to do that. So you are always lying when you speak. When well, let's put it this way. You're always not telling the whole truth. I don't think you're always <laughs> lying. But, you know, when- <laughs> <laughs> I love, yes, the, the differentiations that you make, they're so interesting and fun. It's so beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, when you get into court and they say you, uh, you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Uh, so that means that, you know, uh, I'm not going to tell any lies, but I can leave out important information. And in the court, they say, no, you can't do that. And I think that's what we're always doing with language. We're always leaving out important information. It's different from lying. And in fact, it's unavoidable. But it comes back to our sort of this ethical question, um, you know, uh, Am I, what should I leave out? What is okay to leave out? What do I want to put in the foreground? And if it's a competition around is Elon Musk a good person or a bad person, is he evil or brilliant, you know, uh, we're using language to, to, uh, to have that battle. So uh, just uh, want to, uh, uh, because it's very interesting how you, you, you are the 
you have the best way of telling the truth in the way that you talk. So I want to give an example. Let's say I will try to describe Elon Musk and you are telling me if this is the maximum way to tell the truth. So Elon Musk did amazing things in his life. He inspired so many people. He is a, one of the, the richest person in the world, but he also made a lot of mistakes. He also is a human that uh, has a family and has concerns and biases like everyone else. And so, like, do you think this is a, a good way to uh, to uh, elevate and like say the truth? And also, uh, he is maximizing. Also, uh, he's trying to maximize profit sometimes with his companies and like to say some of this uh, negative stuff as well. So this is a balanced truth, you think? This is uh, like... Uh, look, I think it all depends on your purpose, you know. So there, there, there's a famous philosopher, uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, who said, you know, who talked about language games. Uh, whenever we're using language, we're playing these different games. And, uh, you know, he said that, I don't know, he had examples like you can sit at a bench and look at a tree and ask, you know, does this tree exist? Well, if you're two normal people where they say you're kind of crazy, right? But if you're philosophers, then that's okay. You can ask that question. Um, and so your question about, oh, should I balance, you know, Elon Musk is good and amazing in these ways and sort of not in those other ways, the answer would be it depends on why you're, you're talking about him. If, for example, you're writing a Wikipedia article about him, I think the answer is yes. You should go for every, try to get the whole balance. And so these are his achievements. He ran this company. He made this kind of profit. He invented that thing, you know. And then here are these controversies and people criticize him for this and that. And you get a balance. And that would be appropriate for a certain function, like, for example, writing a, a Wikipedia article. But if you are at the pub talking to your friends, oh, man, he's amazing and you'd want to explain to people why you're so inspired by Elon Musk. Forget that other uh, bad stuff. Just and, talk and, about and, the good and, stuff. And when someone doesn't know about Elon Musk, you don't start, he's a, he's a family person, the bad stuff that, about him, and you want to explain to him who he is. So yeah. that's uh, so your, your answer is depends on the context and what you're trying to achieve. Exactly. I think most important is what are you trying to achieve? And it comes back to my view from the book that language is a form of action, that what you're, that you have a goal when you use language. Representing reality or trying to just describe the truth, that's not really a goal. It's, it always underlies a goal. What are we trying to do with this bit of language? Are we trying to become closer friend with that person? Are we trying to help that person? Are we trying to convince that person to invest in my company? Are we trying to, you know, just uh, catch up with an old friend? The, the answer is, you said context, but I think context is a very vague word and I think really much more specific would be what are you trying to achieve through this way of talking? What is this, wh how do you want the other person to react? That's, that's the kind of key. Should I start thinking like that about my YouTube videos, what I'm trying to achieve? Uh, well, I think you already do. I think you already do. You have a very simple... And not all... Like a lot of times, like, it's, like it will get you to a different place if you actually think uh, what I'm trying to achieve with the way that I make the video, with the language that I use in the video, like... Uh, so it, it, it's a different, it's a very interesting perspective to look at stuff. 
Yeah, I, 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 I agree. I think it's fascinating what you're doing. And so in the book, uh, actually a lot of the book at the end is about narrative and about how storytelling works. And I think in, um, you know, in your YouTube videos, a lot of the time, so firstly, you said before uh, that when you're talking to your uh, collaborators about, you know, planning a, a video, one of the things you want is for people to to stay uh, with, watch the whole thing to the end. And that is, I think, uh, probably your top goal is to, uh, so you are specifically thinking, that would be a perfect example, you're specifically thinking about how do I influence these people's behaviour and I want them not to switch off because they, at any second they could uh, shut the video, watch a different one, get up, whatever. And you are very concretely thinking about how do I influence their decision-making that I, I make them not do this thing that they might do, which is switch off the video. So stick to the end. That's your purpose, your first number one goal, which you already think about carefully. Then you might have maybe secondary goals like, you know, what's my brand and do I want people to become better people, you know, whatever, you know, do I want them to be more sophisticated or more thoughtful or, you know, this just depends on the brand that people have and, and different channels and all of that. Um, so, uh, you know, when you ask that question, uh, I think, again, it all depends on, I think you, you can reflect on what your goals might be and it's worth thinking about narrative in this respect Thinking about movies, for example, so take Hollywood films and novels. I talk in the in the book quite a bit about a sort of the basic structure of a script, a screenplay, um, and so they are built to get you to stay with the story. You get transported. You know, you want to know what happens. You want to see how the uh, hero gets. You know. Breaks out of the prison, or gets his uh, girlfriend back, or finds his daughter, or whatever the film is about. You know, you get captured in that. But any filmmaker will tell you that every film is about more than one thing. So it's going to be about some very surface thing, like is uh, you know James Bond going to actually survive, or is he going to be killed by the bad person? Is he going to get the gold back, or just some very sort of concrete? objective but then there's always another level um does good win out over bad or can people you know um overcome their fears or some very foundational questions and so for you if you're thinking of that, that's how i would think about it the, the challenge of, of 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 designing a youtube video would be okay there's more than one goal first is keep people watching to the end second well, that's up to you. Who are you? Who do you want your audience to be? What do you want to, them to get out of their experience of watching your, your clips? Well, okay. Before I sleep today, I will write my 10 goals uh, that I want uh, for people to, I want to have influence of people's behavior. What 10 goals I have to stay I watch. Think three, I think three th is enough. Three is enough. <laughs> three is enough. Why not ten? <laughs> ten? Well, ten's a lot. I mean, you know, you couldn't keep track of them all. I think three is always a good number, but, you know, two or three. But up to you, up to you. I think you're doing great. <laughs> but by the, by the way, this is, is, is hard 
to I, I it's hard to find people that they understand uh, storytelling in a scientific way and, right. and with a different perspective. So I was so hooked all the time that we speak, but now that you are explaining the video stuff, I was like Wow, it's like a, a YouTuber friend now that we're discussing about YouTube stuff, which is cool. So uh, I have a, uh, it's time for me to say the second reason why you are here. Okay. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Drum roll, it's large language models, artificial intelligence. So you of are course. linguist. So... I am curious to hear your thoughts on how these things work and like, what do you think about this stuff? Yeah, um, large language models are really quite amazing and I'm certainly thinking a lot about them like uh, everybody else. Um, you know, I started thinking about these things a few years ago when we first started to see in the news. Um, we didn't have, you know, ChatGPT and things like that, but there were some breakthroughs and... Um, people talking about that this was really something new, that computers could create language in a way that we've never seen before. Um, and so I sort of have been monitoring it, but then, of course, this explosion just this year um, of these incredible resources, um, and now just everybody's talking about it. You can go to a kid's uh, uh, a sports match and the parents are all talking about it. Um, they have nothing to do with linguistics or computer science. So obviously it's a really big deal that, that you know, the world is being, is going to be changed by uh, large language models in a very profound way. Um, I think that I'm getting a little bit tired of the sort of, Maybe it's going to change soon, I hope, but, you know, people freaking out about it, um, people kind of wanting to stop it, wanting to uh, control it. I think that it's, it's, it's much more good could come out of it if it's used well. You know, I, I often think about it in terms of um, using a calculator. You know, when I was a kid, uh, you know, my mom was at university and she had, she got this calculator, uh, this big chunky thing and you could uh, do your sums, your statistics. And nobody was saying, oh, that's terrible. I don't know, maybe some people were, or you should do it with pencil and paper while you, you know, have that thing. It's, you should use your brain and you're, it's not good. I think people are talking a little bit like that uh, uh, these days with large language models that they find it unacceptable that you would use there's something morally bad about using ChatGPT to to write a text or something. Um, I think that is kind of weird, actually, and um, I, I, I sort of understand it. Maybe we can talk about that, uh, come back to it. Um, but there has to be like a cultural change where people stop worrying about the idea that um, we could get a machine to write content for us like emails and and uh reports and things like that i actually think it's totally fine as long as uh you read what it's written so i'll tell you give you an example that in um uh, in australia we have a research council that uh, scientists apply for money from the government to do their research and when a, a a proposal comes in they send it to other scientists for evaluation and the scientist sends an evaluation back 
uh, to the council and they make decisions. And this year the council said, look, here, we got this report back here from us, another scientist talking about the value of this proposal. And if you read the text of the report, there is a cut and paste that the bottom part, uh, you know, it says, do you want me to regenerate another response? That, you know, this person cut and paste the whole thing from GPT-3 and just stuck it in there. And it was so, they didn't obviously even look back. They used GPT-3. They didn't even read what it said. They just cut and paste. So that's terrible. That's just really lazy and stupid. Um, and that's not what GPT-3 is going to be good for. GPT-3 is going to be good for uh, saving that person a lot of time, but then they use this technology in a uh, in a responsible way and they actually go back and they, they start to put their own voice and their own agency and take responsibility for what is written in that um, uh, in that text. So that's one whole sort of set of issues I think is is that we are uh, dealing with the fact that it's brand new idea that you could have text getting generated for us in the same way that a calculator can do sums for us, right? We should be fine with it. We're just not ready uh, for it and it will take us a little while to get used to it. Um, and then I guess the other big sort of question is, you know, in what way is this computer actually using language? Is it speaking? Does it know language, right? That's, I think, maybe one of the questions you, you, one of the things you might have been asking with your question is, you know, is this, does this mean that computers have learned human language? Um, I think that everyone would agree that in one sense the answer is definitely not. Uh, and that's because we know that the large language models don't work in the same way that humans do. How do we know that? Because you need to feed billions of words into these models to get them to learn how to speak in a, a fluent way. But a four-year-old child uh, can speak English fluently. It doesn't know the things that uh, all are on the internet, but its language use is completely fluent just after four years and they're not getting uh, exposed to billions of words. They're getting exposed to much a smaller number of words. So human language capacity is operates using a completely different mechanism. Uh, something in the human brain that we are trying to understand in linguistics, but it's not the same mechanism that the computers use. Okay, so we know that there's... But if we go back to what your argument was, uh, what language is... It seems that when I'm chatting with ChatGPT and I, I get a response, it seems like language to me, isn't it? Like, yeah, because well, it's I, I, trying I think to it's... influence me in some way to uh, to have uh, this answer or, uh, rather than the other answer. <laughs> this, yes. So let's uh, unpack that. Okay, so. Um, I, we don't have to say that it's trying to influence you. Okay, um, but what we can say is you are being influenced by it, okay, or you are allowing yourself to be influenced by it. So every interaction is has two parties, okay. So often, uh, you know, we can, uh, language can work quite well with only one of those parties 
there. So, so for example, um, I don't know, some, you, you, you can talk to someone and they didn't actually get your message, like maybe they were asleep or, or, or the, the letter, you know, you wrote a letter and it got lost. You still feel that this was in, important that you said these things, okay? So there's a sender but no receiver. Um, the, the AI thing is the other way around, okay? There's a receiver. You interpret the language that comes to you and you change your behavior based on that. So you are influenced by the language that comes from the, the model. But it's not trying to do anything. It's just a machine, okay? Now, I think something very interesting comes up here that you could say then, isn't that what all language is like? So when I talk to you now, you are actually making decisions about how to interpret my language. You are actually coming to conclusions about what I'm saying Maybe I am a robot. It really doesn't matter because you're the one who is actually actively deciding what I mean. You're the one who's actually interpreting my messages in a certain way. So there's something very active about the listener, okay? So language, we think about languages, oh, well, I put the, the words here, I send them to you, you unpack them, they're there. That's not how language works. The language is very, the listener is very active, right? So you can get this these words from uh, large language models and of course they're words they're part of language I think nobody can deny that um, but you inject all of this understanding into those words you make choices and decisions about what to believe what to think as a result of those uh, words being written but, there but on your screen the, the same way like I'm talking to you exactly the same way I'd yeah, I think so. I think so. Uh, I think I, so. I, but there are important differences. So, so one important difference is consciousness. <laughs> uh, well, let's talk about that in a minute. I was going to say, I was going to say, one important difference is that is the relationship that you have with that with that other agent. Okay, so you're talking. You know, you you talk, you're talking to me. I'm this human being. Um, you know, we we arranged this conversation. We made a commitment to each other to to be here at the time and place. You've asked me things mostly. I've asked you a little bit back. Um, you know, there's an arrangement that we've made, and we're sticking to this. And um, you know, maybe one day in the future, you might contact me again, etc. Um, so we've actually met, and we have some kind of connection through this and we're both kind of committed to it the relationship you have with the computer is is very different um and of course you have different relations with different humans so you might ha have a certain relationship with a bus driver you get on a bus you say hello you sit down you you, you get to your stop you say thank you you get off that's it okay so you use language to to create these very sometimes very simple, very distant relationships, other times very complex, very intimate relationships. Uh, and uh, the, the way you interact with the la large language model is just another kind of relationship, but it's very particular and kind of weird in the sense that you know it's not a person. You don't have any personal commitment to that entity, that 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 thing that speaks to you on the screen. It's not... Your friend, it doesn't expect anything from you. You're not going to see it unless you turn it on. It's a completely asymmetrical relationship. Um, so here's one reason why that's the case. Does, does 
does ChatGPT ask you questions? No, right? It doesn't send you an email saying, hey, can you help me with this? Or I've got a question for you. No, you don't get, it's only you ask questions and then it responds. And there's not very many human relations that are like that. There might be some. So, for example, in the courtroom, you know, the, the lawyer asks the questions, the, the, the witness has to answer them. And that's a very fixed, <laughs> so it's a little bit like one of these very specific institutional relationships like a lawyer and a, and a witness. Um, and very impersonal and very extractive, okay? So, so that's my view of it is, yes, it's language, um, and it's a very specific kind of relationship that you have to that agent, that machine, that artificial agent, but it's not, it's not a personal relationship in any kind of, in any kind of way, but it, it's definitely language. It's, it's not too personal yet. No, that's true. And, and, and <laughs> I think it probably is pretty personal um, already for some people. So I, I saw, so there's an app called Replica. I don't know if you know this app. Um, uh, th there was a case just this week. Um, I can't remember, but it was a, it was like a killing or somebody had actually committed a, a murder and uh, this person was, It was mentally ill, but they actually were saying that they they had spoken to their their um, they kind of were married to this agent on this app, um, and that the agent on the app said, "Yeah, you should go and murder this person," um, and 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 that's a really interesting kind of borderline case because that that app is specifically designed for you to build up a relationship so that they get to know the machine builds a model of who you are and what kinds of things you want to hear. And uh, this is a good example of the, uh, the real-world effects coming out of that kind of a relationship and why I think those kind of relationships are actually very wow. problematic. Now, now that you explain me that the reason of language, the basic of language is to influence other people, if large language models find the way that best influence humans that's scary well they have already got that they will they, they, they will know exactly what time what to say at what point and when it's more developed and they will have voice and then it will have maybe a face or something like then it's like and then you trust it and gets all your decisions so it will be able to influence you in so many ways yeah yeah but humans all humans are like that already Or it's our world is like that already. It's just that we're dealing with other humans. I mean, we allow other humans to influence us in all of these ways, and that's scary too. I just don't think that you know. I think there's a real overemphasis on the scariness of the of the artificial agents because humans are already much more scary than that. Uh, you know that humans are already manipulating us in all these ways using language, and and it's it's much more scary and dangerous than anything that a computer could do, in my opinion. Um, Now, whether, you know, what that means, I don't know. But I think at the moment, the key is to, again, to be mindful about the nature of the way the language is being used, uh, the way that we're using this machine as a tool. And it's very challenging to us because it may also, it raises ethical questions. People are often focusing on the ethics of the, the machine and, uh, and so on, but 
it, I think, makes us look in the mirror a little bit and think, you know, are we being manipulated in these scary ways by the real humans that we know? Are we manipulating other people in these ways? We haven't thought about that. Uh, so I think there's a lot to learn from large language models. Mm. And uh, uh, what I what I think is needed is just really careful, deep thought about these problems and not kind of panic, uh, moral panic. I just don't think it's, it's, it's going to be helpful. Well, I, I see what you're saying and I agree with you, but I think uh, humans are not very clever to persuade yet, but maybe the machine will be a lot more efficient and have the right uh, or it will have much more good or bad intentions or something. It will be much more accurate to the thing. So I'm not, I, I'm not saying that uh, I agree with you that uh, for now is like, is nowhere near for the afraid and more is excitement is suited yeah, yeah. here than, than yeah, I, af- being afraid. I think what, what's important here is that humans take responsibility to, to a large extent. So you, you, you just said, oh, this will be, it's scary because the machines will, you know, learn our preferences, basically. But that's what they're designed to do. Uh, you know, they're rewarded for acting in ways that we like. You know, when we like the information they give us, uh, you know, the interaction stops, we've got what we needed. Um, so we basically reward these systems with um, in certain kinds of ways. And the question is, we should ask ourselves is, are we rewarding them in the right kinds of ways? So I think we can look at um, the recent history of social media to kind of see that actually not really. So we, 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 we scroll on Twitter, you know, and, and we reward the, uh, the, the, the algorithm. Time. The algorithm knows, okay, if we, if it shows us stuff that is, um, extreme or, you know, uh, shocking or whatever, it actually makes us want to look at it more. Um, and that's bad because it's, it's not manipulating us necessarily in a, in a, in purposeful way, but it's just learning from what we, what we prefer, right? So you can easily say, well, that's not the machine's fault. That's a silly humans who are, you know, um, making this choice to only watch shocking stuff. Um, and so the, the response is to say, okay, therefore we need to be, we really need to be mindful. We really need to uh, step out of ourselves and look and see, is this how I want to be interacting with this agent? Is this how I want to be interacting with this application? Uh, and that's actually, to my mind, by far the hardest and most important piece of all of this, uh, it's not a tech, there's no technical solution. There's no technological solution here. The solution has to be within the, the, the minds of the human beings who are using these systems. Can we respond responsibly to these systems? That's what we need to learn to be able to do. Uh, so, so you're saying basically similar thing to what, uh, Elon Musk tried to say now with Twitter, like to that we need to not maximize profit or advertising your watch time in the channel. We need to unregretted time spent on our website, something along these lines that we need to really think about uh, 
the algorithms, how they are designed, what's the uh, what's the goal of the uh, that you have the to the uh, machine learning to do to optimize for. Uh, I'm not sure. So I don't know the specific comments that you just cited that, that, that he was saying, but it sounds like you're talking about decisions about how to design algorithms, the decisions about how to design the social media platform. Uh, but think of it the other way around. So, you know, you can think of all of social media as this giant um, or the, all the internet really is this uh, giant kind of octopus but with billions of of arms and every arm that uh, right at the end of it th- at the end of every tentacle is is a smartphone and that's somebody is attached to that right um, so one way you can say from inside the heart of this octopus you know you can say okay well what should i be pumping out to these uh t- to the end of my tentacles you know and uh, th- but the other way is to just flip that around and say okay i'm at the end of one of these tentacles with my face looking at one of these uh, this little nozzle this this smartphone um i can control this interface using my brain okay if i am mindful enough if i can uh, overcome. So w- one time uh, when I was in a on stage kind of a panel talking about some of these issues, uh, somebody in the audience asked, uh, "Who should be the gatekeeper of the you know fact checking that comes through the internet?" And I said, "Well, you know, I don't think there's any technical solution that." Uh, you could come up with that would prevent or that would guarantee, you know, the quality of information that was coming through. Uh, but what you can do is every individual can be a gatekeeper. So you, as a receiver of whether it is shocking content that makes you not want to log off or whether it's fake news or whatever, um, you can diffuse the problem at the terminal point of that tentacle by saying, okay, that's bullshit, or okay, I've had enough for the day, or okay, you know, I'm going to override my natural inclination to watch more shocking stuff or, you know, or cat videos or whatever the case may be. So that's what I think online literacy really has to be about. It's about understanding your own uh, weaknesses uh, as a consumer of language as a as a respondent to language, as a consumer of imagery, uh, if we ha- if we can understand our own responses better, then we can actually take more responsibility ourselves rather than trying to puzzle over technical solutions that would be administered by people like Elon Musk. If I give you one trillion dollars, how do you use them to have maximum impact in this world? Ah, uh, that's incredible. Um, Yeah, I haven't thought very much about that type of a possibility. Um, you know, people in my world don't usually go around uh, handing out trillions of dollars, but I, I, it, I think that... You need to come to the United States. 
Okay, but look, I mean, I, I think to my mind, I think the theme of what I was just talking about, which is really about some form of education, some form of enlightenment that uh, would actually increase people's capacity, individuals' capacity to to be able to somehow regulate their own behaviour in how they consume uh, the information that they're getting and sort of step up a level and say, okay, I'm not seeing this in an objective way or I'm not seeing the other possibilities. That's what true critical thinking um, is about. And I think somehow, I don't know the mechanism, I don't know the answer how you would actually create this, but if we could increase the, you know, the, the world's kind of degree of enlightenment in some sense, um, the world's, you know, the number of individuals in the world who are able to um, be more critical about what they're seeing, not critical in a negative sense, but in the sense we were talking about before where we're allowing ourselves to be criticised to improve uh the quality of, of the information and the knowledge that we have. I mean, to me, that's the most important thing that we could possibly do in the world because, you know, a lot of the crazy stuff that's happening, a lot of the really negative stuff that's happening is um, it's down to human psychology and it's down to some pretty basic kind of acts of decision-making um, uh, among humans that we're not really thinking very deeply. We're focusing on question quite surface level questions of uh, identity and um uh, uh you know without sort of really going that to to deeper questions of of what it means to be human and how to improve the world you know so i feel like it's a very vague answer um but i feel like i don't think basically my view is that the ills of the world are not going to be solved technically with technical solutions, you know, we're not going to, if we kind of put up satellites to deflect the sunlight, okay, that, you know, might help a little bit in some respect, um, but these are not going to really stop the big problems that we have. Stopping the big problems that we have is really insisting on some of the foundational principles of, of you know, of enlightenment, which means um, really putting a value on true knowledge and really putting a value on being self-critical and being creative and thinking about what do we need rather than thinking, you know, how can I defend what I already believe? Well, I will not allow you to not tell me how you are going to use the money to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I wish I knew it, that really would be worth a trillion dollars if you actually knew how to do that, uh, you know, and, and I'm just talking about a dream. It's really just just diabolically difficult um, to to change people's minds but you, you know you just have to keep working at it and I think that you know there there are people who believe that the world is uh, getting worse um, but then there are people who say no it's not it's getting better it's fantastic um, so it's actually really hard to to know, you know, you have people like Steven Pinker or whatever saying, look, you know, people are getting uh, less superstitious, they're getting more curious, they're getting, um, you know, there's all sorts of ways 
in which the world's getting better and, and typically they come down to education. Uh, they come down to some really fundamental sort of basics about figuring out um, the tools that you need to apply, for example, the scientific method, you know, that you have hypotheses, you test them. Um, but at the very, very core of it is that you, you don't believe your eyes and you don't just look for confirmation. Uh, you actually look for evidence and you look to be, to be disconfirmed. So, so more education is a very, maybe a very lazy answer. Uh, but, uh, you know, if I only had, uh, the answer to your trillion dollar question, maybe I would actually deserve, uh, to get a trillion dollars for that. We'll see. If you're offering, seriously offering it, well, let me know. <laughs> well, let me get it first and then I'll think about how I will allocate to you. Right, right. <laughs> so, uh, I want to say that, uh, coming in this interview, uh, um, uh, language for people is not the most, uh, interesting thing ever. Because they like what you're saying, that is like swimming in the water and we undermine and we don't value the water in a way. So, uh, making this uh, podcast, I understood, uh, the, how, how fundamental this language is. So, uh, I want to thank you for all the, all your answers, your time and everything. This was a blessing for me. So well, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure talking to you. I much appreciate your, your questions and your interest. Thank you, Phidias. Cool. Thank you, guys. Go and buy his books down in the description. Bye-bye. We love you.